Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, where each week we explore the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, and today we're talking about competency-based education. That phrase is quite a mouthful, but it was all the rage a few years ago as a way to help expand access to college programs. The idea can sound radical since it involves essentially doing away with courses as we know them and focusing on having students prove they can master a series of skills or or concepts one at a time. It's safe to say that competency-based education isn't exactly a household word, and these days you don't hear it very much. In part, that's because some serious questions have been raised about the model. So what is up with CBE, as this stuff is known? To find out, we talked with one of the pioneers of bringing this approach to a traditional university. I sat down with Paul LeBlanc, president of Southern New Hampshire University, which a few years ago started a competency-based program called College for America. LeBlanc has also helped shape federal policy around this CBE idea as well. In 2015, he spent a few months on leave from Southern New Hampshire to advise the U.S. Department of Education. He has some surprising things to say about this, including that he's learned not to call it competency-based education with students. We'll find out what he does use to explain it and where he thinks the trend is going right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. All right, I'm here today with Paul LeBlanc, president of Southern New Hampshire University. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. A few years ago, Southern New Hampshire spun off this kind of new idea, College for America. And you had some pretty ambitious goals about, um, you know, this is a competency-based program, so it's not tied to the credit hour, and it's, I believe, project-based. So it's trying to be a different way of delivering education with an idea toward being lower price and, and helping people. So, you, but you had, when you all started College for America, the idea was to expand access. And so you, I think you had ambitious goals for oh, the hundreds students. Hundreds of thousands of students someday. Yep, absolutely. Ha, have you had the demand that you expected, uh, you know, now a few years in for, yeah, so for this idea? No, not, not at the velocity at which we originally hoped. It takes a while, um, longer than we would like. So because we have been a B2B mm-hmm. um, offering, one of the things we learned, uh, we, we had not done a lot of work in that space, is how long it takes. Uh, you know, it's easy to get pilots, and uh, we can kind of get our foot in the ground, but it takes a long time to then move through the corporate organization, the approvals at every level, all of the sort of idiosyncratic machinations. Every corporation, every employer treats this program differently. So it's taken a while, but the flywheel's now turning much faster. So a couple of examples, Partners Health, single largest employer in the state of Massachusetts. We did a multi-year pilot with them. They loved the results so much that they announced just last fall, late last fall, uh, at a convening that Governor Baker put together that they will now roll out across the whole of the Partners Healthcare system. And now even with that rollout, it will take a while internally to get on people's radar screens and what is this thing again and how does it work? And we almost have stopped using the phrase competency-based education with students because that's kind of a term of art within the industry. Students Mm. don't know what that means. If you say project-based learning, oh, I get that, right? Like they... We, we can explain it. We're not hiding anything, but it's the language that resonates with people sort of is different. Um, we uh, haven't announced it yet, but a very large employer um, has just uh, signed on for us to do 5,000 students uh, recently out of the military, channeling them into their executive training program with us as the college option. 
Hmm. So we're, uh, we've just been approved in the past year by OPM, by the federal government. So now again, we're, and that took a while. That took two years. Hmm. So I think one of the things we've learned about B2B is it takes a long time, but it's really the flywheel's turning faster now. And when you say B2B, just to explain to people how that works. Oh, sure. So it means that we're dealing not in a kind of the retail world of marketing to individual students, but rather partnering with large-scale employers to upskill or educate their employees. Mm -hmm. So we are now the uh, free college option for Anthem Insurance, one of the big four. Mm-hmm. And they have 50, As a benefit to their workers. Yep. So they have about 55,000 employees, um, thereabouts, and yep. about 35,000 have no college degree. Hmm. So we are now, they can enroll with us and they can get a full-blown bachelor's degree without a penny of debt or loans. Hmm. Right? Anthem has so a who tuition. who pays for that? Anthem. Tu- Anthem does. They have a tuition remission program that's greater than the cost of our program. The interesting place where we're really domestically seeing some interesting traction now is in K-12 partnerships. Hmm. So we partner now with a series of high schools in Boston, Providence, the Rio Grande Valley, Texas, uh, California. In fact, today at GSV, we'll be presenting with our partners in Los Angeles, the Da Vinci Schools. Hmm. Um, And they're doing uh, either dual enrollment or early college with their students. And these are overwhelmingly students of color, very poor, um, and not well served by sort of incumbent higher ed. Um, As an extension of that work, we announced recently a $20 million initiative to educate 1,000 DACA recipients nationwide. Hmm. And that was with help from three philanthropies um, that are all interested in that work. So the original idea of College for America was to bring college out to the communities that are underserved. It wasn't the idea of bringing them to us. It was really kind of how do we serve populations that are underserved. So even in the workforce, we had always aimed it or pointed it at the bottom 10% of wage earners in very large companies. How do we upskill them and give them more opportunity? And now with our community-based partners, we're really looking at how do we bring education out into the community? You know, I wonder, because even project-based, some of this, if you're, if you're trying to, to do something, a new delivery option, is there a way you could walk us through what it's like for a typical student, you know, yep. any of these students you might have described, right? Because um, I, I ask this partly because, you know, there's this question of, is there a professor or how does it, where, where does the, yeah. if you're, if you're just giving, you know, competency based suggest to me that there's a contest and as long as you pass that, you're, you're good. Yep. So where does the, what does the education itself look like? Yeah. Typically? So, so a, we don't do exams. Uh-huh. So it's all project based and those projects look like the kinds of work you would be asked to do in the workplace. Hmm. So one of the things that students report that they like best about the program is it feels relevant. It feels real. And if they are one of our adults who are working, they use those skills the very next day. And that sort of relevancy and applicability is something that you often hear as a matter of skepticism in more traditional models. Mm -hmm. To go back to your question, you know, when students enroll with the program, we help them understand the, you know, the full range of the competencies are about 120 of them for the associate's degree. They're grouped, so it's not like we just throw a a long list of 120 items at you, but... Let's talk about the competence. Let's talk about there's a group or a cluster of competencies around communications. There's a cluster of competencies around quantitative methods, math, et cetera. And we go through those with them. Where are you strong? Like, where do you already know these things? Like, let's look at some of them and see, like, and if you say to me, oh, I'm actually really good at math. I, I work in my family's store and I do all the books. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's a place we want to start. Because, you know, psychologically, we want to give you an early win. So then we're going to sort of, you know, in every instance, students look at the projects, 
the, they have a learning coach. So feels like an instructor, even though they're not. They're, they're really a coach advisor. But that, that learning coach will walk you through the project, all of the content, what the hypotheticals are, what are the learning materials, what are the competencies, and what are the rubrics. There's full transparency. Like, okay, I see what success looks like. So you're not going to have that not infrequent experience of getting something less than perfection on an assignment and not knowing why. Like, well, my instructor gave me a C, but they didn't say very much about what I didn't do. You'll know exactly, like, no, no, you get these six items on the rubric, you didn't get these four. Mm-hmm. We, um, we get sometimes criticized for being rigid and that you have, to be, you have to demonstrate mastery on every item to move forward, to be considered competent or to have mastery. Um, you know, people will say, well, look at it, you know, an 80 is good enough to pass with a B in a class. Why is, why is that not good enough in your world? And we're like, well... When it comes to competency, we don't want our pilot to be good at everything but landing, right? Like, we'd like them to be competent at everything. <laughs> so, so they go through all that. They get that transparency. And then they start working on the projects. And they will have to sort of delve into the learning materials. And they'll realize, oh, I thought I, you know, I, I may keep my, the books in my family's business, but I don't know this math concept. So I'm not going to spend some time on that. I'm going to look at that. I'm going to talk to my learning coach about it. And when they feel they're ready, they can submit their project, and that goes to a qualified faculty member. And that's where they get some of, and this is their report, some of the richest feedback and engagement with a faculty member they've ever had. So they'll get back their projects, and they'll get sort of mastery and not yet on every item on the rubric. Most projects are good for more than one competency, so they're usually working on three or four or five competencies within that context. Um, And then they'll have back and forth with that instructor. So... It's interesting, you know, we are doing, we're going to do an experiment this fall on our traditional campus called Project Atlas, in which we're going to decouple the um, coming-of-age experience of being in a residential traditional campus from the academic experience. So for 25 students, they're going to be doing College for America while living in a dorm, playing on teams, etc. And the question, we're using the Harvard Center for Educational Research to do the efficacy study. Do they learn as well or better than their peers on our traditional campus? Hmm. And they're going to do it. So they're going to get it for free. They're going to get four years guaranteed free tuition because they're to be the committing pigs. to be the guinea pigs. And we will, you know, we have obviously a do no harm approach here. So should we think for a moment that it's anything but working, we'll sort of move them into the traditional program for free. But, um, but I think it's going to be really interesting to see that. And in that case, we don't want 17-year-olds without a class schedule, right? So we're going to take College for America and kind of put it in the wrapper of a class schedule. So while they may not be going to a traditional faculty-led class meeting, they're going to a place with a learning coach in sight with their peers working on their projects, working in teams and doing all those things. So it can be made to look pretty familiar. One of the, one of the reasons I ask is because, as you know, about a year ago now, um, the um, Office of Inspector General of the Ed Department yeah. had a pretty scathing report and audit on Western Governors University, which yep. is another project-based, um, a competency-based yep. university. And their big critique, in a nutshell, um, is they saw kind of a lack of faculty interaction because it had a similar um, kind of coach and and competency check instead of this going to class, sitting through seat time, getting, you know, getting what people think of when they close their eyes as an education. And they they said because of that lack of of instructor engagement, they shouldn't be getting financial aid, shouldn't be qualified for for federal financial aid, which is a big issue. But... You know, I, I wonder what you. It, it seems like because your model is kind of similar. I mean, what would your defense be? Not that that report was about you, just to be clear. But, but, yeah. but your model is kind of similar. 
And so I'm wondering, what, how would you approach someone who has that skepticism of like, well, you're not really getting instructors. Yeah. Um, so if any of the members of the LYG are listening, we really are very different. I'm teasing. I actually spent time with the, I did a sabbatical, I think, as you know, Jeff, uh, working for Ted Mitchell at the department and spent yes. time at the LYG on this. And the, the item within um, Title I, actually, not Title IV, that they were invoking was regular and substantive interaction. That's rule. right, with faculty. And they... So it is a rule not well-defined, so understand that the OIG has done the most conservative reading of that rule. And the OIG, I think, has scarred by the genuine abuses they witness with correspondence programs and what would be generally called self-learning, where students just ship a bunch of materials and learn on your own. And none of that, so, so that's kind of what they're guarding against. And if you take a look at WGU of all providers, and I would say us as well, but WGU has extraordinarily good results. Their students are getting proactively monitored. They have learning coaches that are intervening. They do have, they use a different term, but they have qualified faculty who engage in the learning when students need it. Students are, are not at all left on their own. And I think there's a not infrequent confusion of self-paced with self-learning. They are not the same thing. It's not just a good luck, here's a Google search bar. No, God no, right? And, and no one with integrity or pride in what they're offering would do anything like that. I think skeptics would say, yeah, and that may be true for WGU and SNHU, but there are a lot of bad players out there who would love to have that kind of latitude to just run without, without guardrails. Understood. Um, but what I'd like to say about, and it was interesting when I, when I met with the OIG, when I, when I was at the department, you know, I think there is, a, frankly, a general un- a lack of awareness of how rich now the underlying data analytics, the platforms. I mean, we monitor our students 24-7. We know when someone hasn't logged on. We know when, when someone has struggled with a project. We know when performance has dropped off. We actually have closer to a 360-degree view of our students than most traditional institutions do. Um, Then when those students are engaged in the work, they have ready access to qualified faculty if they're really stuck. We're never going to let somebody get stuck on a math concept, for example, and say, well, just figure it out, like spend more time looking, right? We're going to get you that help. And then students describe, you know, the interaction with faculty when they get back their projects as some of the richest engagement they've ever had. And And there's no penalty to resubmit. So... Unlike a lot of traditional programs, like, nope, you get whatever you get at the deadline or you know, allow you one submission or else you can submit, but you're going to have, you know, 10%. We're like, no, hard things take more time. Like, why would you penalize that? Um, it's just, yeah, it just, it, it speaks to an abject lack of understanding of how far we've come, both in terms of learning science, in terms of technology, in terms of platforms, in terms of all the ways that we support learners. So I one guess of the things I've averged, um, sure. if, if I may, just as, you know, is, I think there's bipartisan support for rethinking that whole rule. There was bipartisan rejection, essentially, of the OIG's uh, recommendations and analysis and understanding. And I think, you know, what people are looking for is to say, look at what we don't want to do and the sort of way that rule needs to be rewritten for the future is that students are getting proactive academic support through their learning, including access to qualified faculty when they need it. Um, and that just seems to me, you know, it's, it reflects the kind of unbundling of those traditional faculty roles and how that can happen now in myriad and rich ways, including, by the way, having traditional faculty in the ways that the OIG would like. Yeah, I guess um, not to, to dwell too much on this, but so uh, getting back to the example student in your, pro, in your College yeah. for America. So what, what is the mechanism? I think, I think I understand, you know, putting together a project that, yep. that is, you know, career aligned and I can imagine yep. something where I turn it in and 
and get it rich feedback. But what about what happens before I've turned in the project? Where do I go? I mean, yeah, so isn't it like, just a Google search? I mean, like, or I'm just oh, no, trying things trial yeah. and error on my own? Or no, no, no. There's I mean, not a class though. Well, if you think about the project as a class, in a sense, right? I mean, if you think about, it, you've got a bunch of work to do to do to complete this particular project, which has complexity and depth and layers, and requires you to genuinely master a fairly complex set of things. You're going to have to sort of move through that and assess, you know, am I ready? Have I looked at where am I struggling to understand? And with each of those submissions, you're back into the learning materials and you have a learning coach who's looking at your performance, working with you on that, having this conversation to say, do you think you're, you're ready or not? We also like to leverage, you know, we, the original notion of College for America was, can we leverage all of the social capital that learners typically bring to the equation, which we tend to neglect when we think about conventional models. So we love it when students are working peer-to-peer groups, and we try to encourage those situations, right? With people in their, in their world, yeah. their workplace. Yeah. Yeah. Or their... It could be fellow work. You know, so there was a great, um, I remember an early meeting when Martha Cantor, who was then the deputy secretary, came up to me with the first cohort of College for America students. And sitting around a conference table at Anthem Insurance, she said to them, do you miss not having like an instructional faculty member when, when, you, when you start working on the projects? And they looked at it, well, no, because, like, remember, Betsy, when I was sort of stuck on that piece and I called you because I knew you'd already done the project and you walked me through and then you showed me how to do that math. I was like, oh, now I get it. And they all had these examples. And I remember Martha thinking, wow, this is like, that is a rich learning engagement and it's not one that's faculty-centric, which is not to say that in our case, if a student is working on a project and it's stuck, they, they, they have recourse to a faculty member. It's just that that faculty member is not the first place they turn. And we actually, we, you know, it's interesting, we're still... I think trying to, and this is why we want to use the, the Harvard folks to really help us under efficacy in this model, which is there's, there's a lot more complexity as we unpack students' learning journeys through this. So, for example, in conventional courses, we're all about pace. We know, we, we have the data. If a student takes one semester off, the chance that they will uh, trit is really, if the stat goes up two semesters, we'd probably have lost them. In College for America, we watch students go silent for quite a while, hmm. and then a flurry of activity. And when we have a, a, a learning officer who tracks all this in the data in the platform, because you can see, right, we have optics into all the ways that students are engaging. We can see how much time they're spending on learning resources. We can see what seems to be effective, what's not. And what's really interesting is there isn't one path. There isn't a sort of conventional pace. What we do know is that students are faster than their peers in traditional programs, hmm. that they retain at higher rates, hmm. and that they perform better on third-party assessments. So there's not a question of does it work or not. I mean, that's not the question. So, so I guess the, with the, the competency-based model, project-based, if you're you know, calling yeah. it that now, but the people that are doing um, this kind of work, when, when you guys started for College for America, it feels like this was a bit of a buzzword, competency-based mm-hmm. education. And I hear a little bit less about it these yeah. days. Yeah. Do you feel like, where do you, where do you feel like we are right now? Yep. So I think, I think I have a fairly good fix on this. So I'll compare it to MOOCs. So MOOCs came along. Everyone talked about MOOCs. MOOCs were going to change the world. Then there these was are the, the free, then we went massive open online yep. courses. And then yes. we went through the Gartner curve, right? So then we went into the slough of despair. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was down on MOOCs. Well, MOOCs have been quietly now doing really good work, mm-hmm. building their platforms, without more the hype, partners, but, but it's without happening. the hype. And now you're actually getting the genuine sort of up curve again, right? The upswing again with MOOCs really now having an impact more realistic, more substantial, and more widespread, I think, over time. 
Um, I think competency-based came along. It was the buzzword. Everyone's going to do CBE, mm-hmm. et cetera. Then we have sort of now we're somewhere down in that sort of quiet or slow despair. Uh, the OIG has had, I think, a little bit of a chilling effect. I think Scott, my uh, counterpart at WG, would argue that it's had a bit of a chilling effect. Um, but but I sort of talk to colleagues all the time who are working on their CBE programs. At other institutions. Yeah, other and I think they're in various stages. I think they are not shining a light on it quite the way they would have when it was the hot <laughs> thing to talk about. But I think they're genuinely seeing both an opportunity to rethink their delivery models, and I also think... It is the best response to the number one problem that higher ed is being asked to solve today. So competencies gives higher ed a lingua franca to share with uh, the workforce that we've never had before. Employers think about competencies. They think about what can my workers do? What do they need to do? What can't they do? What do I need them to do next year? Um, and if you are asking those kinds of questions and then CB, you're asking those kinds of questions, now we're, now we're having a conversation that wasn't happening before. So I guess I'm hearing a few things. One is that this hasn't gone away, even if you know we're writing about it a little less as far as competency-based education. And also, there's a little bit of a under, figuring out how to tell students about it so that yeah. you can explain it to them. Um, you yep. mentioned competency-based education is you know does not have the ring in the marketplace or like to no, a typical but, student. So what's interesting is once students experience it, they don't want to go back. Hmm. So for our students, when they hit the associates level. They can certainly move into and transition into conventional programs, and some of them do. Mm-hmm. The great majority of them say, no, this is great. Like, this works for me. I, I want to be in this program. And now we have, you know, we launched the vouchers just a year and a half ago, whatever. So they, they, they you have somewhere my, else to people go. People are matriculating straight into the bachelors now. Yeah. So I think, you know, from a student perspective, the results are unequivocal. Students love this model. But it's an experiential thing, right? So you don't know that you love it till you've tried it. And if you haven't tried it yet, we have to kind of explain to you why this looks a little different. And I think, you know, with the, with the experiment on campus, what we're learning, and maybe we should have done this from the beginning, really, is a little bit from nudge theory, which is if you're going to do something radically different, put it in a wrapper that people um, recognize. Hmm. And I think if we had even sort of said, look, these are courses that are really project-based and don't have a kind of fixed time, people say, oh, okay, okay, I get that, right? That's easy to understand or it's easier to understand than to talk about, well, no courses, no credits. I mean, we took that as a articles of pride, and I think rightly so from a design perspective, but from a student perspective, like, uh, I don't care if you don't have a course of credits, like, just tell me how I get to my degree. <laughs> so, and then I think the low cost is still such a primary driver as well. Like, you know, mm-hmm. students who are being shut out of traditional higher ed who can see an affordable pathway that doesn't require them to take on debt, like, They'll try stuff. Mm-hmm. They'll give you a chance. I mean, it's a classic Clay Christensen theory. You get traction with non or under-consuming populations. That, Basically, their options are not, they don't have the option of the traditional Oh, they're not model. great options. Like, I could mm-hmm. do this other option, but I'm going to have to take on a lot. I'm going to have to take on some debt. We know the market is far more reluctant now to take on debt. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, I did want to ask, you mentioned that you, you know, you had a role at the, a, a short you had a sabbatical. Short sti- I did a sabbatical. A, Three-month sabbatical. You had a three-month sabbatical at the Ed Department yeah. a couple years ago, and it was at the height of this uh, generating the EQUIP program, as it's called, where there's a, um, the Ed Department grants kind of exceptions to people for the typical federal financial aid yeah. rules to try some new models. That was sort of my primary project for Ted. And 
how do you think that's going now, a couple years in, uh, the, uh, the Equip project? Uh, not well. Um, so you've only uh, so the original notion was a couple of dozen Equip sites. Yep. And um, and then there was a lot of resistance within the Department of Ed to Equip. And I think that was kind of a rear guard action that dampened down the number. So the eventual number was only eight. Yep. And of that eight, I think only the first one has been approved. Just recently. Yeah. And of the ones that were approved, it probably, it's great that they were. So I'm really pleased that they've approved it. But it's not really what was mostly envisioned. So Equip was mostly to envision shorter term, more granular credentialing pathways to get people on ramps into better work or work period, right? And uh, so I know the bloom is off the rose of coding boot camps, but in their heyday, they were kind of the quintessential example. Mm-hmm. 15 weeks, big jump in earnings, mm-hmm. you know, great placement rates, but expensive and out of the reach of poor people. Can we give them a way, a pathway to get access to these high product- productive uh, programs? So great that they finally approved one, but it's kind of a cheaper way to get to your four-year degree, and we need those too. But I really would love to have seen more non-traditional providers playing in that space of new credentials, new pathways to work. And, and the other thing, of course, Equip was meant to do was to stand up new quality assurance approaches. Right. To have, hope, yeah, to have a different way of accrediting, quote-unquote, right? Or, yeah, or, or assessing checking. quality assurance. Yeah. And I think, you know, for some people... It was, it was most exciting to get non-IHEs into the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I think for me, and I, I, I can't speak for Ted, but I think he would agree what was more exciting to us was really the opportunity to rethink how we do quality assurance and to move us away from an input-based prescription model that has characterized most of accreditation to a model that really would look at outcomes and new ways of measuring performance. Um, so, you know, that was three years ago when we had that discussion. And three years later... We got one, <laughs> so no. I think it's it's really, it's it's floundering in the regulatory frameworks that are you know the nature of, of regulation. And I'm not an anti-regulation person, but it kind of shows the downside. You know, there is no single Department of Ed, and I think that if I learned one lesson in my time there was that we talk about the Department of Ed as it's a monolith, mm-hmm. and it's actually a little bit more like Game of Thrones. It's a set of kingdoms. Sometimes at war with each other, sometimes in truce, but all of them have power and all of them exercise it differently. So Sounds like quite a sabbatical you had if you're spending time. <laughs> all right, Game of Thrones may be a little too over-the-top an analogy, but, but I do think you know it's the ability of many of those. It's a siloed organization in which many people can say no, but not a lot of people can say yes. And one of the people that I brought on board to work with us on this made an interesting observation to me. She said, you know... Um, we mostly live in a world where you get rewarded for getting shit done. Excuse my language on our podcast. Um, interestingly, in the department, a lot of power derives to those who stop things from getting done. Huh. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much so, for sharing this, uh, this, this with us. and talking. Yeah, happy to do it, Jeff. It's really fun stuff. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. We recorded this interview as part of a series of talks with newsmakers at this year's ASU GSV Summit earlier this month. We're eager to share those conversations, so look for a bonus episode of the podcast later this week. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us uh, wherever you usually listen to podcasts. And if you could, take a minute to give us a rating. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back soon with more of our exploration of the future of education. Thanks for listening.